If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, John chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 41 through 71. And for those of you who are just joining us, we've been studying through the book of John for quite some time now. And we've been in chapter 6 for, this will be the third week now. In the first week, we looked at how Jesus tests his disciples. Last week, we looked at how Jesus tests the crowds. And this week, we're going to look at how Jesus tests the Jews. And what you'll find through John chapter 6 is that Jesus kind of sifts down through the people until there's really only his 12 disciples standing around them. And even then, he looks at them and says, do you guys want to leave too? So he's doing a bit of sifting and uh, narrowing down the crowd to see who are true believers in Jesus. And like I said, we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 6, verses 41 through 71. So church, these are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. John writes, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Many of his disciples heard it. Or when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, who those who were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said this, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned away and no longer followed him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The words of God for his people. Let us pray. Father, as we approach such an obscure text, I pray that you would bring clarity to it for us. Father, I pray that you would take these words that may seem unfamiliar to us and familiarize them uh, to us. Lord, that you would help us to see clearly what you're saying here. The same Holy Spirit that inspired this text, we pray that it would inspire us. And Lord, we ask that our hearts would be open to be able to receive these things, that we would not have hard hearts, that we would not be stubborn in our own thinking, in our own, own ways of understanding you, but that you would bring clarity and that you would bring even joy and um, excitement about what your word says right here. And Lord, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this passage has traditionally been interpreted in one of two ways. Either one, people believe that this is a teaching about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and they, they say that this is teaching about that. Or they'll say this is not about the Lord's Supper. It can't be because Jesus hasn't yet instituted the Lord's Supper. He hasn't even given this to his disciples. So how could he be teaching about this? This would just confuse these people and it wouldn't make sense. So these people say he's teaching about the spiritual realities of election and God's sovereignty over those who will believe or who will not believe. Now, my position and the standpoint that I'm going to be preaching from this morning is actually kind of a a middle way view between these two. An Anglican theologian once said of this passage, if you ask me then whether he's speaking about the Eucharist here, I should say no. If you were to ask me where I can learn about the meaning of the Eucharist, I should say nowhere so well as here. Right. So there's there's the kind of middle view. And that one statement resonated with me more than anything that I've read on this chapter before. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage from the standpoint of two questions. We're going to ask, why is this such a hard saying? Some of you may think it's obvious, but why is this a hard saying? Number two, how does this hard saying become more palatable? How do we how do we understand this to where it actually is something sweet to us to what Jesus is saying and not sometimes gross? Because you read it at a surface reading and might say, well, that sounds like cannibalism. How does how is this good news? So we're going to look at those two questions and those two questions are going to answer why this isn't about the Eucharist, but why this is the best place to learn about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. So let us start with the first question. Why is this a hard saying? Well, you can see. Why it's a hard saying by going to the points of difficulty where these people are grumbling and disputing. You see these two things in this text where the Jews are doing this. You see in verse 41, they're grumbling. And in verse 52, they're disputing. So you can see here's where the tension is. So let's see what the tension is specifically. Let's look at first the grumbling in verse 41 and 42. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So what you see here is they're struggling with who Jesus really is, which is ordinary flesh, but also God. Right? This is what we confess to believe as Christians, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this just doesn't make sense to the disciples. It's a hard saying. They can't fully comprehend that. And just picture why. Now, I want you to think in your mind. Imagine a 30-year-old man 
I'm 29, so kind of picture someone about my age. A 29-year-old comes to your religious establishment. It says that they're in the synagogue in verse 59. So he comes to your church. A 29-year-old comes to your church. A 30-year-old comes to your church. And this person you've known all your life, right? He's grown up. This is so-and-so's son. This is so-and-so's daughter, whoever. This is the person that's in front of you. And his sermon is titled, I am the bread of life. I'm the one that's come down from heaven, he says. And you know what I am means because you're entrenched in a religious context that means I I am means God. I'm God. And bread of life, that connects you to your history and your church that says this is the way that God provides for us. So I am the God that provides for you. I'm that guy. So now you can start to see see a little bit why these people say it's a hard saying. This man just claimed to be God in the flesh. This is a hard pill to swallow. What would you do with this news, right? Think about that. Put yourself in their shoes. Try to erase everything that you know about the New Testament. Right? You, you have a greater revelation than they had. We, we sometimes forget this and take it for granted. They didn't have that. So imagine what your response might be only having the Old, Old Testament to work with. Right? You've got a picture in your mind of who you might think the Messiah is. And if you're a Jew, you probably would have had a much different conception of the Messiah than Jesus actually was when he showed up. And this is hard. It wasn't a Jewish, or it wasn't the Jewish academia had not thought of an incarnation yet. They had actually. Jesus, in the, the in a simple form, had actually been prophesied that one might come from heaven, and he might even be a man. So this wasn't that radical. But the Christian idea of the incarnation hadn't been thought of yet. The specific way that Jesus came. Think about this. They could imagine someone like if you think about Elijah in the Old Testament, right? Elijah went up into heaven. His his adult person went up into heaven. Enoch, it says he walked with God and he was not. So people have come and gone up into heaven as adults, and that's just kind of been their state. But think about the way that Jesus came. Jesus didn't come as a full-grown man down to earth, did he? He was born of a woman. A very, very ordinary way to be born. Everyone in this room has been born of a woman. So in that sense, you are like Jesus. Jesus came into the world in this exact same way, and that's what would make you think, well, that's why the, he isn't God, right? If I stand up here this morning and you say, well, I know Barbara Scroggins. I know Brian Scroggins. That can't be God. That's the way that these Jews were thinking. This can't be God because I know his parents. So when the Messiah came, he didn't come as an adult from heaven ready to reign and overthrow the Roman Empire. Right? This is what they were thinking. Jesus is going to lead this Jewish regime. He's going to overthrow the Romans. But he came as a humble baby in a manger from a poor family, not a rich family. He's not a, a Jewish nobleman. He is a nobody. He is a nobody. And when he did come in his kingly move that they really missed, he actually judged Israel, not who they would think he would judge. Right? They would think, well, this guy's going to judge the Romans because we don't like the Romans. Jesus came and he judged Israel. He destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Then he turned the dreaded Roman Empire into the Holy Roman Empire, the very opposite of what the Jews had dreamed and hoped of. Jesus doesn't fit the Jewish box. This is why they're having a hard time. And this is why he later told his disciples, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He said seven times, if you didn't catch it, this the Son of Man has descended. He's making this point. I've come from heaven. He says, what if you were to see me come uh, or to go back? In other words, if my descent was difficult, don't forget I'll offend you in my ascent too. When I go back, my kingdom, it's spiritual. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. My throne, it's not in the, in the Jerusalem that you know. It's in the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? This is a kingdom that, where I'm reigning in the hearts of man, not in an earthly kingdom on a physical throne. It blows their minds. They're aggravated about this. And Jesus is just getting started. This is just the first point. 
Let us turn to where they're disputing. Verse 52. Verse 52 says this. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And you probably dispute at this point too. How does this make sense? To receive Jesus, he's saying, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. That rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Right? When a, another human being says, to, be, uh, to, to accept me and to be on board with my message, you've got you to gotta eat me. Right? This is, it doesn't feel right, does it? So he, he doesn't make the terms very palatable, does he? Did you get it? Okay, no. <laughs> pun in, the pun was intended. He's saying, eat my... Okay, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. So this young man in his early 30s, who you know from birth, comes to your church. He says he's God, and the way for receiving him is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. The most offensive thing about the first part was that he's ordinary flesh, like you and me, and he's claiming to be God. This is their point of contention. So then he doubles down on that and becomes quite crass by saying that his humanity, his flesh, that point that they have a big problem with, he says, this is what you have to eat to have life. Your biggest problem, that's what you're going to have to swallow right there, that I am flesh. In other words, I'm going to take your point of deepest offense about me and uh, and say, not only do you have to accept that I am flesh, but you must eat my flesh if you want to have any life in you. You're going to eat it. You're, you're going to get on board and you're going to swallow every bit of who I actually am if you're going to get on board with me. You can't have your idea of me and that be your life. You have to have me as I actually am. Now, eating and drinking to the Jew... When they would think about eating and drinking, this is actually a way that God spoke about himself in the Old Testament. There are scriptures that talk about uh, that God is our, our sustenance, our life, and we eat and drink him. It's sweet to the soul, but it's all kind of a spiritual sense. It's not so much a physical sense. So they would have had this idea of eating and drinking, meaning kind of a, a taking within and becoming one with. But when you bring the incarnation to this, this is where it gets difficult for them to really understand. Think about it. When you eat and drink, there's uh, there's a real sense in which you not only derive nutrients from it, but you actually become it or it becomes part of you. Right. When you eat something, that's actually what happens when you when you eat bread and you drink wine, uh, that, that bread and wine, it's digested. But what is digestion? Right? It's where there's this kind of transformation process, this kind of metamorphosis where it becomes you and you kind of become it, right? There's this oneness that happens there. It, it turns calories and carbs into energy to be exerted, and it's proteins that are incorporated into your body. You're actually turning into that in some sense. Your physical makeup when you eat and drink, that is what happens, quite literally, right? And Jesus is saying that this holds true for the spiritual as well. I want you to eat me, he says, and by so doing, you will become one with me. And here you can kind of get some of the hints why I can say, well, this is a good place for us to learn about this, about the Lord's Supper. We'll get there in a minute, but just have that in mind when Jesus speaks about eating and drinking. So imagine how repulsive this would have been to the Jews who are already offended at Jesus. They're already ticked at this guy. And here he comes saying that uh, if you want to have life, you must eat me. Right? It's no wonder why they, you see in chapter 7, they're wanting to do the things that they are doing. Look at the uh, next chapter, chapter 7, verse 1. Look at how this rubs them the wrong way and how they're willing, willing to go to this extreme. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He ticked these guys off. To the point where they're ready to kill him. They're ready to murder him. He, they are so mad. It's like kicking a, 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 a hornet's nest or something. They're swarming this guy ready to murder him. So 
What makes these sayings of Jesus even more offensive is that in light of the rejection, he tells them, yes, you guys are all ticked off. Yes, you're grumbling, but don't do this because you know what? This has actually already been planned out. This has been ordained. Imagine how that would take this just to another level. Are you kidding me? Are you saying that God had this planned out, that God saw this coming? And Jesus essentially says, yeah. Look with me at John 6, verse 43 and 44. He says this in verse 43. Jesus answered them, don't grumble about yourselves. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. In other words, I see you're having a hard time with this, Jesus says. Don't grumble. No one can accept this unless God directly changes the heart. You cannot accept this because the father has not granted it to you. You're not coming to me because... God hasn't granted you. You're not being drawn to me for some reason. So Jesus says, don't worry about it. So then he quotes the prophets. He, he supports his argument. He pro, uh, quotes Isaiah and says that this is only something that God can teach you. This can't be taught by man. That God is the one that can teach you what is actually true. And you will come when God teaches you this. Your rabbinical academia is no help here. Right? You can't learn Christianity. You have to believe Christianity. This is a heart matter. This is a, a spiritual matter. It's not just about learning what is true from the educational system. This is something a little bit different. It's a spiritual reality. So the icing on his cake of offense is the doctrine of election, the fact that God chooses. Now, think about this. They assumed that they were the chosen people of God. The people of Jerusalem, or the Jews, they still believe this, by the way. They believe that they are God's chosen people. But his point is actually that they were proving themselves not to be chosen by God. Why? Because they rejected him. They rejected the one that God the Father sent. And when he sends him and you reject him, that shows that you're actually part of those who reject God and are not chosen. He's saying, don't worry about it. You're showing yourself that you are not true. He was, Jesus was, the stumbling stone that Peter later wrote about. Remember, Peter's watching all this fall out. He's watching this go down. He's going to write some things later on. So what is the way Peter thinks about this in hindsight? As he looks back, what does Peter think about people who disbelieve? When he thinks about that mystery of some believing, some not, what does he say? Well, 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8 says this. You don't have to turn there. We'll turn there in a minute. But it says this. So the honor is for you who believe. But what about those who don't believe? It says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a hard pill to swallow. They stumble because they were destined to. So Jesus brought this doctrine of election back up again when he saw the disciples grumbling among themselves, too. Right. Even the, the, the disciples had a hard time swallowing this. This was hard for them to see. Look at verse 63 through 65. 63 says this. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. So his point is that humanity cannot come to salvation apart from the miraculous work of God. That's a work that only God the Holy Spirit can do, and he has to do that work first. You can't just learn it. 
God has to do something in your own heart. Salvation isn't a process of rational descent. Or, uh, rational ascent, sorry. So you can't just think your way up to heaven. And you shouldn't think that way about unbelievers either, right? You can't just teach them how to be a Christian. Evangelization is not just teaching facts about God. It's teaching uh, and it's laying people, uh, laying things in people's lap that makes them believe or not believe. It's here it is. Do you believe it or not? Not let me teach you how to be a Christian, right? We can sometimes get in the pattern where we, we think evangelization is just let me just teach you stuff, a bunch of stuff about the Bible and then you'll be a Christian. No, that's not necessarily what it's about. It's about telling people who the Messiah is and making them make a decision. Are you going to believe or are you not going to believe? That's what it comes down to. It's a spiritual matter. And again, I can't emphasize enough. The doctrine of regeneration, the new birth, what we've been talking about all through John. And that order is important. Regeneration, the new birth, being born again, it precedes faith. It precedes faith. In order to believe God, you must first be drawn to the Son by the work of the Holy Spirit. That has to happen first before you can ever believe. And when you believe, it's to show that you have been drawn, right? God has to do the work first. And look also at verse 64. Jesus says that he knew from the beginning who it was who would not believe and reject him. Now, why would he say this? Why would he make this point? Well, he says this to further prove his argument that no man can come to the Father unless it's granted to him. He's making it absolutely clear that we only come to Jesus because the Father grants and draws us to him by his own predestinating work. That's the only way. God has to do it first. Now, for some of you, this doctrine of election and predestination is much more offensive than the sayings that Jesus tells to his Jews about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, or Jesus being fully human. And the point I want to return to is still to answer, why is this so offensive? Why do we sometimes get really offended about something like this? I know people, there's probably someone in this room, maybe a couple of you in this room, that this rubs you the wrong way. You don't like it. It doesn't feel right. Well, the reason that Jesus' message is so hard for some of you to listen to is actually the same reason at the root of it that the Jews didn't believe. And why is that? It's hard because it challenges the way that you think about God. You have a conception in your mind, a preconception of who God is. And if that doesn't align with what you already had in mind, it rubs you the wrong way. It's a hard saying, and you don't like it. Right? I've, I've been there. I've felt the same things, even about some of these texts that we're looking at this morning. So think about it. The Jew had a hard time seeing that God could be fully God and fully man. Some of you in this room might have a hard time seeing that God could be fully sovereign over salvation, and you have a responsibility. Right? These two things are not uh, opposites, just like God being God and man are not opposite. There's a way for these to come together. The paradoxes actually come together in the person of Jesus. Jesus is actually who makes sense of all these seemingly contradictory things. And what you need to simply accept is that Jesus is the resolution to paradoxes. Jesus ties together heaven and earth in his person. He ties together divinity and humanity in his person. He ties together the, uh, the material and the spiritual in his person. Jesus is the one that brings these two things together to make sense of reality. It doesn't make sense outside of Christ. And when this happens, it has kind of a tornado effect. I want you to kind of follow along with this analogy about a tornado. Think about a tornado. Tornadoes happen when cold air descends and hot air ascends quickly, and then there's a crosswind, right? 
where this kind of mixing of things happens, and then there's a crosswind that makes the tornado. It forms a vortex. Now consider the ministry of Jesus in the context of human history. You have this big, long stretch of human history, and this one little point, there's this really potent thing that happens where God descends and ascends. There's this moment in history where God descended from heaven and then comes back and ascends back into heaven, and there's this crosswind of all these witnesses. Where they see the whole thing and it, and it kind of spins the whole thing and it gets a turn in. Where Jesus comes like this crashing tornado. right? And he kind of whips through all of history. And Jesus came to earth just like that. Like, like a raging twister that, that ripped through the established religions. Because it did. It tore a lot of people's thinking up. It devastated individual ideologies. People had their minds blown. It mixed together the prevailing Jewish and Greek thoughts to spit out an unforeseen combination of the two called the church. Right? There's lots of this mixed stuff in here. And the church is also called what? The body of Christ. Where Jesus kind of comes and we are his members. We're his hands and feet. And we're kind of going through history as the representatives of Jesus. This tornado that comes and just rips up everything that we thought we had it together on. All the points where we, we thought we had stuff figured out. Jesus blows it up. He, he just messes it up every time. And then he'll say things like the spirit blows where it wills. You hear it sound. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. That's what it's like, Jesus says. That's what Christianity is like. It just really messes people's minds up. It messes the world up, but it does it in a beautiful way. Let me ask you something, church. When a tornado is ripping through everything, and you're trying to hold on for safety, you say, this, I think this is safe, and it gets sucked out of your hands. Where is the only place that you can run and that you can turn to in a tornado? Where is the only safe and calm place? It's not your bathtub. It's not your basement. Where is the only safe place in a tornado? It's in the eye, in the very center of it all. There's a calm. If you step out just a little bit to try to cross on the other side of it, you're sucked right up in it too. At the center of the storm, at the center of the tornado, that is where Jesus is, at the center of history. And when you're there, you're safe. You're safe. You're not going to be hurt. Because he's just told us things like, no one can snatch you away from me. I'll never lose you. What Jesus or what the Father gives to me, I will never lose that. You are safe. And the disciples realized this when Jesus asked them if they wanted to leave too. Didn't they? He says, Where do you want to go? Do you want to go with them? They're all leaving right now. They're getting sucked up. They're going. Do you want to leave with them? What do they say? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. You are God. Where else can we go? You're safe. And we realize that now. Yes, Jesus just blew away most of their church family. Yes, Jesus just swept up and spit out their preconceptions of the Messiah figure. Yes, Jesus just sucked the wind right out of them by his offensive language, but they're safe, aren't they? Right? All the stuff that they're holding on to safety, Jesus, nope, that's not it. That's not safe. It's not your bathtub. It is me. I am your safety. And Jesus promised, again, that it would never be taken away. Why? Because it's an eternal life. This is life that doesn't end. So there's why it's a hard saying. It's a hard saying because it challenges the way that we think about God, and it kind of rips all the idols out. All the things that we try to hold on that we think are God, God says, nope, that's not me. Nope, you're hanging on the wrong thing. You've got to stay right at the center, and I am the center. But how do these sayings become more palatable? Right? We still have some hard things to wrestle with, don't we? Very simply, we believe it. Right? Some of you are going to think, well, that is stupid. That is not the real, that's not a real solution. It is. It is, actually. You are called to believe it. Now notice what Peter says in verse 69. 
He says this, and you may not have even caught it when you read this the first time. It says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The order there is very important. In other words, first you believe it, then you come to know it. You must first to believe it. You must first believe it before it's going to make sense to you. That order is very important. Don't wait for all the paradoxes to make sense and then you believe it. You believe it and then they're going to start to actually piece together and make a lot of sense for you. St. Augustine, an early church father, says the process for knowing is faith seeking understanding. Think about that. Faith seeking understanding. You're looking to find out more, but you believe it and you're going to stand on what you believe and then you're going to move forward. You're not going to flip that order. You can see this very clearly because the man who professes to have a hard time swallowing this pill, Peter, writes of its beauty later in his epistle. Right? I said we return to this text. If you would, would turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2. And we're going to look and see how Peter thinks about these things that Jesus has just shared with him. The hard sayings. At this point in Peter's ministry, it's still a hard pill to swallow. But over time, he, he says we believe it, right? He says we believe it and we've come to know. Let's look at what he says when he says we've come to know. How does Peter now know these things that Jesus has taught? First Peter 2, I'm going to read verse 2 through 10. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me just stop there and just make the point that he's connecting food and drink with Jesus in the word, right? He says, this is actually a good thing. Taste it, and then you'll see that it's good, right? There's this process. Okay, so as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But what about those who don't? How does Peter think about that? But for those who do not believe, the stone, he's talking about Jesus there, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a radical shift, isn't it, from this is a hard saying. Because that's where he started out. These are hard sayings. How do I swallow this truth? Now what is he writing? This makes a lot of sense, guys. Jesus, he's the chosen one. He's the precious one. He's the one that God laid down for us, and he's actually the point of contention for so many people. Jesus is what we used to have a hard time with. Now Jesus is the one that we cling to closely. Right? This is how, she, uh, how Peter's been radically changed as he's believed and has come to know. So he's now moving from accepting the belief to proclaiming the belief. Right? He's, he's, at first he's just trying to swallow it. And now he's moved on to, I'm going to tell everybody. Proclaim the excellencies. He's moving from, this is a hard truth that I've wrestled with, and I'm going to keep it to myself for a little while. But now he's come to know, and now he's going to go tell everyone. You've got to believe this. You've got to come, come and see the excellencies of how God works. He's laid this Jesus down as a stone. And some people, they're going to hate him. They're going to reject him. They're going to say, no way. But guess what? This, this stone, is, it's precious. It's a precious stone, and it's marvelous. Because we walk in his marvelous light when we believe in him, and that's the honor for us. 
And the dishonor is for those who don't believe. And I'm going to keep proclaiming that. That's actually good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. And I'm going to keep saying that over and over. So it becomes more palatable simply by believing it. Second, these sayings become more palatable by applying them correctly. Now, here's where we're we're going to shift over to the Lord's Supper. And I'll, I'll explain how this actually brings greater light to the Lord's Supper. So this is a spiritual meal. We're getting ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. So I want you to be thinking of the right frame of mind. It's a, it's a spiritual meal, but it's sacramentally represented under a physical meal. Right? There's actual bread and wine right here. So when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, you should hear that the same way that the Jews heard, I am the bread of life. Right? It's in a sacramental kind of way. Jesus doesn't want them to think literally that Jesus is a piece of bread. Right? That's not what he's saying when he tells the Jews, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there's a spiritual presence here. There's a spiritual uh, way of speaking here that is sometimes offensive, yes, because it's represented under the physical. But what I'm actually saying is I want you to understand the physical or the spiritual um, reality that's at play. Does that make sense? So just as the Jews thought, this man ordinarily was born from Joseph and Mary. How can he say this? Right? He's flesh. How can he say this? You might be tempted to say, this bread came ordinarily from flour mixed with water by Miss Rose. She made that. This is just an ordinary meal. She whipped it up in her house right before she came here. Right? This is just an ordinary meal. How can this be from heaven? How can this be a heavenly meal? Right? That's what we're tempted to say. Do you see the temptation? We, we've all had it sometimes. When your elders tell you, this is my body, this is my blood, that Jesus says that, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, your flesh says what? No, it isn't. It's not. It's, it's just bread. It's just wine. Nothing's going on here. Don't worry about it. Nothing spiritual is happening at all. And Jesus, you know what he says? That's no help at all. The spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The spirit is where you need to be tuning in. If there isn't a real spiritual presence in the Eucharist, then guess what? It isn't any help at all. If you're just going through the motions, if you're just seeing the physical bread and the physical wine up here, you're missing the main point, which is Jesus. There's, the spiritual presence has to be seen there. You must receive the Lord's Supper for what it actually is, not what you want it to be or what you have thought about it might be. Right? Jesus says, this is my body. Right? So think about it like that. The Lord's Supper hosts a real spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. And when you approach his table in faith, you can say the same as Peter. We believe and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe what you say. And you tell us to eat your flesh, to drink your blood. We know that doesn't mean physically. We know that something miraculous and amazing isn't happening where it's turning into his flesh. He's not turning into bread physically. But there is a real spiritual presence that's happening here. So the Jews took offense at Jesus because he didn't fit their box. Do you sometimes take offense at the institution of the Lord's Supper because of the way he's speaking about it doesn't fit your view? Right? Would you have normally said... That this is my body. If you were going to write out what the Lord's Supper means, would you have said it in as strong terms as Jesus says it? Probably not. You'd probably say, well, it's just a memorial where we just kind of remember what Jesus did way back then. You wouldn't say, this is my body. This is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. You wouldn't say it like that. And that's the flesh kind of creeping in saying, you're not taking this seriously enough. Or saying you're taking it too seriously. And your spirit is saying you're not taking it seriously enough. You need to go deeper. Now, historically, people have wrongly viewed the supper by making it too literal. We do not believe the bread and wine somehow physically turns into Jesus. That's transubstantiation. I'm not teaching that. 
But we also don't believe that it's just bread and wine, do we? It's not just an ordinary meal. This is something different. The balanced biblical view is that there's a real spiritual presence of Jesus hidden in the physical elements. Jesus offers himself really right here. So we must be able to come to this meal and receive Christ in it. We eat his flesh and drink his blood spiritually, and we do. We become one with him spiritually. Remember what we talked about, that Jewish idea of eating and taking within? That's actually happening spiritually with you when you partake of the Lord's Supper. Just like the bread and wine physically become one with us, Jesus spiritually becomes one with us. We abide in him, and he abides in us. Why? Because we just spiritually partook of life himself. He just gave us life. Spiritual life. We feast on the life of the world. So the Eucharist in this way is true spiritual food, true spiritual drink. It doesn't just feed our bellies like the man in the wilderness. right? It's not just a meal. It's not just a snack. It eternally satisfies us when we come in faith, when we believe. By faith, it's partaking of the true substance of life, which is Christ himself, and he eternally satisfies it's amazing. It really is amazing. That's why it's called a mystery. That's what sacrament means. It's sacramentum is the Greek word for mysterion. Right? It's a mystery. This is why the words of institution are so vitally important to the Lord's Supper. You know, those words that the elders say, or they say, this is my body, where they read word for word what God's word says. Jesus says the spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life is what Jesus says. The words are. The word I'm proclaiming to you. So you don't have to be a postmodernist to recognize the words are powerful narrative-shaping forces, do you? When Jesus says, this is my body, something's happening, right? The words actually mean something. In connection with the Lord's Supper, the words of institution that Jesus spoke at the Last Supper become words of spirit and life. When we say those things, this ordinary meal becomes a heavenly meal. It's changed. Right? The, the story changes. It's no longer Rose's meal anymore. It's no longer Rose's supper anymore. It's the Lord's supper. Something radically changes when you come in faith and you partake in faith. So church, the psalmist charges you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's the charge. We come, we taste, and then you'll see. You believe, and then it'll start to make more sense. Come to Christ, and he's going to help sort these things out for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, 